Hi to all of you joining us online uh, this morning as well. And, you know, if you were here last weekend, wasn't last weekend awesome? Like, it was such a great, such a great weekend. Um, all five of our campuses were at this location where this weekend, you know, our Northwest is meeting at Bear, uh, Bears Power Lifestyle Center and Airdrie, Airdrie Cornelia Christian School, South and Bridgeland Campus. Last weekend, we were all together like one big grand family reunion. Um, last weekend, we had over 12,000 people, um, probably close to 12,500 when you include the kids and adults all here last weekend. Um, and all after, you know, after everything that was done, we know of at least 10 people who surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ for the first time and are a part of his family. Now, isn't that so good? Um, on Saturday night last week, we had about 80 or 90 of our friends from our new Canadian Friendship Center joining us as well. Many of you invited folks that came for the first time. And I want to say thank you to uh, all of you who served last weekend. And so many of you serve regularly on, on so many of these teams, but I just want to specifically thank everybody who served in our early childhood area, in our grade school area, in our grade 5-6 uh, ministry, part of our hospitality team, security team, usher teams, greeters, information center, cafe. We love our food at the cafe, cafe teams, apple seed, special needs, our parking Teams last weekend, our video, our tech, our worship, choir, orchestra, prayer teams. Could you join me in just thanking the folks that served last weekend that served so regularly around here? And, um, and you know, I get to, I just have the, the privilege and the blessing of hearing stories that when people come here, um, like I heard just last Tuesday, just this past Tuesday night, um, someone coming for the first time and just said, I feel like I belong here. I feel like I'm coming home when I come here. And that person has just been to our church a couple of times. But this is the feeling that they get when they show up here. And it's because, because of all of you and your smiley faces, you know, friendly faces, friendly welcoming, but also the folks who serve, right? So when you serve, you make a difference. Thank you for serving. Well, this is the second weekend of Advent. Advent is this season coming up to Christmas where we anticipate, we look forward to the birth of Jesus Christ and celebrating his birth. In a sense, we pull ourselves back into ancient history where we walk with the Hebrew people. We sort of walk in their shoes as they were anticipating and looking forward to Jesus coming for the first time. They were reading through the Old Testament scriptures and they saw how a Messiah was prophesied. The anointed one. Messiah means anointed one. The anointed one, the king, was to come who would save his people. And so today we are in the second week of Advent in this season where we're anticipating, celebrating Jesus' arrival. And this season of anticipation is built on so many other things as well. I mean, we, we look forward to so many other things. Food at Christmas time and candy canes and hot chocolate and snow, perhaps. Maybe we look forward to snow, maybe not. Uh, Christmas trees, Christmas lights, family, friends. There's so much going on that we look forward to, right? And when we look forward to all of these things, I mean, there's a feeling that's invoked within us. Just feelings of joy and anticipation and, and warmth and peace and contentment and all of these feelings. 
And with all of this anticipation and all of this looking forward that we do, what this creates as well, though, are expectations within us. And here's, here's the deal with expectations. When our expectations are not met, what do we get? <laughs> we get frustrated, right? Frustration is birthed out of unmet expectations. And behind frustration is anger at times. And so we look forward to so much at Christmas time and we have these expectations at Christmas time and sometimes though, then we need to ask the question and pause and say, are our expectations realistic for this time of year? Are expectations realistic? What are we expecting? And I think a great question to ask is, as we anticipate celebrating Jesus' birth, Jesus' arrival, are we expecting that we personally will have an encounter with Jesus Christ this season? Are we expecting that as we read God's word, as we study God's word, as we, as we depend on the Holy Spirit speaking to us, are we expecting that we will have an encounter with Jesus Christ? A new encounter, a fresh encounter with him, that we will experience him this Christmas season? Or are we only looking forward to food? and other stuff at Christmas. And all that stuff is great. You know, all the, these things that Christmas is built around. I mean, I love Christmas. I love pretty much everything about it. But there's feelings as well that are invoked in us. And in our society, we see longings expressed through all of what we do at Christmas time. And we celebrate this year as the most wonderful time of the year. And yet, and yet it leaves so many people wanting. Even though we do so much and we look forward to so much, it's not enough. It's not enough to satisfy the deepest longings of our human hearts. Unless, unless central to our celebrating, central to our anticipation, central to our expectation this Christmas season is the person of Jesus Christ. You see, there's so many... So many stories that are told and retold again and again and again this time of year, aren't there? I mean, before December 1st, our family had already watched The Grinch, right? That movie. Already before D December 1st, um, we're likely going to watch the movie Elf. I mean, what a hilarious movie. You could watch that again and again and again. Um, there's so many stories this time of year that are told and retold. I've heard um, maybe some of you know these details better than I do. We don't have cable, but I've heard that the Hallmark Channel has been playing Christmas movies 24-7, right, for almost a month now already, or something like that. Just story after story after story around this Christmas winter season. And for some people, though, all of these stories get mixed together and confused together. Did you know that one out of every 10 people between the ages of 25 and 35 in the UK believe that Santa Claus shows up in the biblical narrative of Jesus' birth. Santa Claus in the Bible. He's not in the Bible, in case you thought. He is not in the Bible. <clears throat> um, and as well, through this survey that was done, um, more people actually than one in 10 believe that there was likely a Christmas tree in the stable when Jesus was born with Mary and Joseph. You see, these stories are great. I mean, stories are beautiful to celebrate this times of year. But so many of these stories, almost all of these stories are myths. 
They're fables. They're not true. The story that matters most, the story that defines our reality, the story that defines who we really are, that defines our identity, the story, the true story, is the story that God is writing throughout all of human history, the story that is, that is told by this book, the Bible, the story whose central figure of the story is Jesus Christ, this is the story that matters most, matters most this time of year. And the story in which our anticipation and our expectation and our looking forward to right, must be based around. And so two weeks ago, Ashwin began us studying the book of Matthew. And uh, what we're going to do in just a few moments is look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and the verses following. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we'll look at in just a few minutes. But Matthew chapter 1 begins with this long list of names. I mean, a huge long list of names. And to actually read through that, it's kind of mundane, pretty boring, um, Hard to get through all of these 16 verses of names, but because we know the context, because we know the story behind some of these names and what took place through, through their lives, I mean, these verses are meaningful to us. These first 16 verses reveal Jesus' lineage, reveals Jesus' heritage, reveals where Jesus came from. And these verses as well, as we read all of these 16 verses, we see that the names in here, there's some kings listed. There's some people who just, we don't know how they fit into Jesus' narrative. Other people, there's poor, there's wealth. I mean, there's, there's poor, there's wealthy listed in these names. There's, there's people who were wicked, people who were faithful. These first 16 verses span thousands of years. Just as you read through 16 verses, you cover thousands of years. And it's almost like the first 16 verses, we're looking at, at the earth through Google Maps, right? And we're zoomed way out where we see the whole earth. That's sort of the perspective here. But then verse 18, when we come to verse 18, begins with, this is how the birth of Christ took place. And what, what we see in verse 18 is we zoom right in to a, a road perspective, of what is happening here with Jesus finally, finally being born. And so I want to invite you to stand with me. And you know what? The um, reason why we stand is just out of honor for God's Word. Because God's Word is true, and so it's what we depend on. It's what we seek for wisdom and counsel and truth. And so that's why we stand around here just to honor his reading of His Word. And so follow along as I read these verses here. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph... Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Do you pray with me for a moment? So God, as we read these verses, we acknowledge they are so true. And we marvel, God, at what you did. We marvel at how you were proactive. We marvel at your acts in human history. Motivated by your love for us. Motivated by your desire to rescue us and save us from our sin. And we marvel at how you did this through your Son. And so God, this morning, we worship you, God. We lift your name high. We're grateful for what you have done. When we were helpless, you did something miraculous. And so teach us through your word right now. Speak, Holy Spirit, because we want to hear what you have to say to us We want to hear what you have to say to and in our lives and then help us to be obedient. Just like we see Joseph here being obedient to you, we want to be obedient to what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. See, I want you to see here right off the bat that the Bible is not written in mythology. The Bible is not a myth. It's written in real life. True events that took place. I mean, we see that right here. There's an engagement between a young man and a young woman, an engagement. Likely behind the scenes, there's wedding preparations that are being made. There's family dynamics going on between Mary's family and Joseph's family. I mean, we see here a crisis taking place. We see here a I mean, real life struggle. Joseph thinking, what do I do? I mean, Mary, thinking, now what do I do? (laughs) This is happening in real life. We see Joseph needing sleep. We see Joseph having a dream. We see Joseph needing wisdom. I mean, all of this happens in real life, reality. And Scripture shows us that it's God who shows up in real life. It's Jesus who left heaven to come to earth. Jesus left the consistent company of God to come to earth. Jesus left the company of angels to come to earth, ordinary life, to enter human history. Now, I'm sure you've thought this once in a while. You've asked this question, like, where is heaven? I mean, where did Jesus come from? Came from heaven, where is heaven? I mean, sometimes we think, well, heaven is up there, and earth is down here. Maybe we think, well, heaven is, you know, on the other side of this life. When this life ends, then starts heaven. Maybe we think, well, there's this great chasm, this great divide between heaven and earth, wherever heaven is, and we know earth is here. But where is heaven? What separates heaven and earth? And I want to suggest to you there's just a a thin veil that separates heaven and earth. A thin veil. 
See, Scripture tells us that when Jesus was crucified, there was a veil in the temple that separated the presence of the very real presence of God, right, from humankind. And when Jesus was crucified and he breathed his last breath, that veil was torn from top to bottom and ascends from heaven to earth. And right now, what what separates heaven and earth is not so much of anything at all. Which is why Jesus came, and we'll see as we continue through Matthew, that Jesus came preaching and teaching and saying the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is among you because I am here with you. I mean, the verse that we just read, um, the name that Jesus would have being called Emmanuel means God with us here on earth. Not only in heaven, but here on earth. And here's the thing. Jesus as well teaches us to pray. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus wouldn't have asked us to pray this way if he wasn't ready and willing to answer this prayer that things on earth would be like they are in heaven. That heaven would come to earth and be made visible and manifest here right now. Here's the thing. We just read In these verses, the story of God coming to earth to walk among us in the person of Jesus Christ. In this sense, heaven crashes into earth in time and space and and just bridges this great divide where Jesus shows us who God is like. In Jesus, we see God. We know what God is like. We know his nature, his character. We see that in Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to earth. This is the good news that Jesus came to preach and teach about. That Jesus is the one, he is God who saves. Jesus is God with us. This is the good news, that the kingdom of God is being established here on earth. And yet, there's also some bad news. And in the time that we have left, I just simply want us to see two things in these verses we just read. Bad news and good news. The bad news of the reality of the gospel and the good news of the gospel. And we're going to We're going to end with the good news, so we'll start with the bad news, because no one likes to end with bad news, right? (laughs) So we'll start with the good news, and I mean, we'll start with the bad news, and the the bad news really has nothing to do with the events that took place in the verses we just read. Let me just summarize what we see here. The Holy Spirit has conceived in Mary, the Son of God. Mary is pregnant. Mary is engaged. Her engagement is a big deal. So much so that, that divorce is what ends this, or would end this engagement, if that's the path that Joseph decided to take. And Joseph is wondering, what do I do now? And he, he had in his mind not to disgrace Mary publicly, but to divorce her quietly. And then we see God getting involved. We see God doing stuff. And so God sends an angel to speak to Joseph while he's asleep in a dream. And this, this is what the angel says, the direct message from God to Joseph via an angel. These are God's words to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And Joseph woke up from the dream and just did exactly what God had told him to do. And 
Joseph named his son Jesus. Joseph names his son Jesus because Jesus will save his people from their sin. The name that God chose for his son reveals the outcome of his life, Jesus' life. Jesus' name tells us what Jesus will do with his life, the mission that Jesus will be on while he was here on earth. Jesus will save his people from their sin. And in this one sentence here, we see the bad news of the reality of the gospel. We see the bad news, and the bad news is there's sin. You see, if there's one problem that humankind, all of humanity that this world has, and this one problem, I mean, is so much greater than any other problem you could think of, the problem is sin. This is the one human dilemma that no humankind has ever had the power to save themselves over their sin. I mean, this is the one pervasive problem that is everywhere. It's in our creation. It's in our governments. It's in our nations. It's in families. It's in us. One big bad problem that we have as, huma- as, huma- as humanity, as humankind. And so, so big of a problem that we can't on our own do actually anything about it. It's affected everybody, everything. No one is exempt from this problem of sin that we have. But as I thought about this, I thought, you know what? People perceive sin, just think about sin differently. And I think some people actually just, maybe they ignore sin, the problem of sin, or they intentionally choose not to believe in sin. They actually intentionally choose to believe that there's nothing deeply wrong with themselves. And if you were having a a conversation with a person like this, you know, you'd try and convince them, look, there's this problem of sin that we all have. It's brokenness. That's why we we can't help but do things that we don't want to do. They might say, well, I disagree with you. If you'd say, well, what you're doing right now is hurting you and it's hurting other people, they might say, well, I just don't see it that way. Either they ignore the problem of sin or they choose intentionally not to agree that there is a problem that we all have, humankind, and that they have. Let me illustrate it this way. You've got a friend, and uh, he believes that he is dead. As crazy as this sounds, he believes he's dead. But he's actually alive. I mean, breathing, eating, talking, interacting with people, but he believes that he is dead. No matter what you say to him, it won't change his mind. And you think, what am I going to do with this friend of mine? And so one day you say, okay, you know what? I'm going I'm to find the two most brilliant medical books written by, by the top medical people in all of the world. Just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant books. Two of them. Give them to your friend, and your friend agrees to read them. So friend read these two books and then afterwards you sit down and you talk with your friend and you say okay friend can we agree in these two medical books um, dead people don't bleed would you agree your friend says yeah I read that I agree dead people don't bleed you say to your friend so you agree and you believe it is true that if a person is dead they do not bleed only living people bleed and your friend says yes 100% I agree with that. So you take your friend's hand, you cut their hand. And wouldn't you know it, they bleed. And you say, friend, yay, you are alive. You're not dead. 
I'm so glad we have this sorted out. You are not dead. You are alive, right? Because we said, we agreed upon that. Dead people don't bleed, and you, you bleed. And your friend looks at you and says, you know what? They've got it all wrong. Dead people do bleed. <laughs> now, <laughs> as absurd as that is, that is the way some people interact with this idea, concept, truth, reality of sin. They just say, I just don't see it that way. And you see, Satan can get people to believe that they don't have a problem with sin. Then, it stands to conclude that they won't see that there's sin at all. And they then in turn don't need a savior. And you see, the bad news about our human condition is what gets us ready for the good news. And the bad news of the gospel makes us ready to receive the good news of the gospel. And I think that's sadly how some people just interact and perceive sin. There's other people, I think, that blame God for sin and problems and the brokenness that they see in the world and even in themselves. And they might ask these questions. So, if God is good, then why is there bad going on? What about wars? What about disease? What about evil? What about murder? What about kids that are hurt? I mean, if God is good, then how can all this bad stuff be happening around us? And, and I would respond and say, all of the things that we see in our world happening, all of the things that we even see at times that creation even is in chaos and earthquakes and tsunamis and famines, all of that is a reflection actually of us a reflection of us, not of God, of who God is. It's a reflection of our deep brokenness, creation's deep brokenness. It's a reflection of sin. Let's talk about you and I for a moment. I mean, when, when you and I are all alone, I mean, we are amazing people. <laughs> we're friendly, we're full of joy, we're just happy, we're patient, we're kind, we're generous. I mean, when we're alone, we're amazing people, right? You are the most patient person until you're around other people that make you have to wait, right? <laughs> I mean, you are the most generous person when you're all alone until someone around you wants something from you. And then you think, oh boy, I mean, you're the most compassionate person. I mean, so quick to listen until someone calls you on the phone or says, you know what, can we meet for coffee? I'm just going through a rough time and I need you to listen to me. I mean, until that point, you are the most compassionate person. You see, it's, it's when we are around other people that we discover really who we are. It's when we're in relationships and through the relationships that we have with other people that we really, our brokenness, our problem with sin really comes to the surface. And at times we don't like that about ourselves, that we tend to be that way sometimes. We want to do what's right. We want to do good. And yet there's this problem of sin, this bad news of sin. See, it's when we look around at the relationships that we have or we look over here and we see conflict. We look over here and we just see that we've hurt people. We look over here, we see people have hurt us. We look over here and we think, well, that relationship, I don't know what to do there. When we look at our marriages, when we look at the relationships we have with our immediate family members, I mean, 
It's relationships that we can see that, that they're damaged at times. Matthew, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus himself says these words. He says this, that it's out of the heart some stuff comes. Out of the heart, out of inside of you and out of inside of me comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, out of inside of us. You see, the world that we create, the world that we have going on outside of us is a reflection of the world within us. See, this is the bad news. The human, the single human problem is sin. And sin that just is relentless comes at us through temptation, comes at us from so many different places. Sin is relentless against us. Paul, a writer in the New Testament, I mean, he is so honest. He's so transparent. He's so honest with what's going on inside of him. This is what he writes. Paul says this in Romans chapter 7. Although I want to do good, evil is right there beside me. I mean, don't you feel that way sometimes? You want to do good, but these other crazy, sinful, evil thoughts are right there. He says, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And Paul's saying, I have these two struggles within me. I want to love God. I want to serve God. I want to do what's right. I believe the truth, and yet... I can't deny that there's this part of me that is not right. He goes on and he says, what a wretched man I am. And then he asks this question, and isn't this the question that we need solved for us? This is the question. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And what Paul knows here is that sin all the time leads to death. Sin all the time leads to death. Sin all the time will lead us, if we continue down that path, to a place where God is not present. The absence of God. This is the question. Who will rescue me? Who will rescue us? This is the bad news of the gospel. Humankind is broken. There's something deeply wrong within us. We are more sinful than we can imagine. That's the bad news. We are more sinful than we can imagine, and we can't do anything about it. But then there's good news. And the good news of the gospel is this as well, that we, you and I, and in fact everyone who has lived and who is alive is loved by God far more than we can imagine that we are loved far more than we can imagine. The bad news is that we're more sinful than we can imagine. The good news is we are loved more than we can ever imagine and ever comprehend. The Bible says that while we were still in our sin, God loved us. When we had done nothing to earn his love, when we'd done absolutely nothing, God loved us. We're more loved than we can ever imagine. The verses that we just read here proves and shows and declares that God's love for us made him, made him conceive a child in Mary. His love made him send his son 
to live on this earth, to be a part of a family. His love made him send Jesus, compelled Jesus to the cross. And his love raised Jesus back to life again so that we could have life. Know this this morning. You are more loved than you can ever imagine. You're more loved than you can ever imagine. You see, Jesus is the one who saves us. We just read that. God says, you will name my son Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, these words that Jesus speaks here are, they're so exclusive. (laughs) What Jesus is saying is there is no other way. I am the only way. I am the only one who saves. There is no one else. But then it sort of begs the question for us, well, how can there be only one solution to the problem of sin? Why can't there be multiple ways? Why can't there be multiple solutions to this problem of sin? Why can't there be multiple ways to God? Why is there only one? Why does Jesus say there's only one way? Probably a couple of years ago, we were, as a church, invited to come and uh, share at a mosque in town. And so I was the one who went, uh, had the privilege of doing that. And what I did there is I presented for 15 or 20 minutes or so on the person of Jesus Christ. We were all, a a Buddhist was invited, a Sikh uh, was invited, a Hindu leader was invited, all to present on the spiritual leaders of their belief system. And so, we all presented, and it was very, very enlightening. And, um, you know, I, I knew this before, but it was just reaffirmed for me in that setting. When people say that all religions are essentially the same, they don't know what they're talking about. They're just wrong. All world religions are not the same. They're very different from one another. Islam is not the same as Hinduism. Hinduism is not the same as Buddhism. It's not the same as Sikhism. Each of these belief systems have differences, great differences. But I I would say that they're, they're the same in that they have a path, they provide a path towards an end goal. And so Buddhism is the path to enlightenment. Uh, Through Islam, Islam teaches that that's the pathway to receive the pleasure and favor of Allah. Through Hinduism, Hinduism teaches that if you follow that path, you would find freedom from the physical into spiritual uh, spiritual, uh, liberation. Every, but here's the thing, every religion is marked by what you must do, the path that you must follow towards an end goal, and that end goal is, is encountering, I'll just say God, and getting God's attention, and being freed from your shame, or freed from your guilt, or freed from your fear, or, or something else, and it's what you must do. It's all built on what you must do to receive something. See, I used to think 
Um, I, I used to think this probably 10, 20 years ago that people were looking for God. I don't know if that's the case these days. I don't know about you and friends and networks that you, you have. Um, are people looking for God? I don't know if people are looking for God or a God. I think, I think these days what I, what I perceive, what I see, my opinion is that people are just simply trying to find a life and make life work. I mean, they, they want a good life. They want a happy life. They want a, a life of contentment or peace or pleasure or whatever it is that their expectations are of life and how life should be. They want that. And, and they're sort of lost trying to navigate, but to try and actually find a life to live that they can be excited about. I think people are looking for life. And I think then they think, well, maybe if I find God, I'll get a life <laughs> and I'll have a life might make it worth me living. I think people are looking for life. And so they keep on maybe seeking after God and that maybe one day God will approve of them, God would be happy with them, God would be pleased with them, and then they'll find life. And it's sort of like this picture of God, you know, seated on the top of a mountain and people are trying to climb up to God, find access to God, discover God and and so many religions say this is what you must do to find God, to, to meet God, to encounter God. And it's a lot of hard work. I mean, after a lot of hard work, then God will love you. After a lot of hard work, God will forgive you. After you do these things, God will be happy with you. After you do all these things and all this hard work, God will give you revelation or enlightenment or wealth or pleasure or whatever it is, but a lot of hard work is necessitated by you so that God might do something. And here's what I want you to hear. Any God, any belief system, any God who forces you to earn his love is not a good God. Any God that requires you to to work hard, to exert yourself, to do so much, to earn his love is not a good God. Let me read these words again that we just read. The message that, an, the, the, that the angel communicated to Joseph from God. Let me read these words again and listen to them and listen for the heart of the God revealed in the Bible. Listen for the, the way that God was proactive. Listen for the way that God loves in spite of sin in the world. Just, just listen. This is what God communicated to the angel to say to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What is conceived in her is from God Almighty. What's conceived in her is what God has done, the miracle that God has done. What's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God has done this, and she will give birth to a son. She will give birth to God's son. In fact, she'll give birth to God, who is Jesus Christ. And you are to give him the name Jesus. 
because he will save his people from their sin. He will save his people from what's wrong with them. He will save his people from something that they are powerless to accomplish on their own. He will save his people even while they are still sinful and wicked and don't believe in him and don't care about him. He will save his people. Do you hear in here the intentionality, the way that God is proactive, the way that God is initiating in love towards you and I and all of the world? This is the good news of the gospel. We are powerless to do anything over sin, but yet God sends his son Jesus because Jesus is the one who will save us from our sin. And and you see, just because someone is alive doesn't mean they're saved from their sin. To be saved from our sin, we need to. We need to believe that Jesus is God's son. And we need to surrender our lives to him and believe in him and ask him to forgive us. And then he saves us from our sin. You see, Jesus didn't come to show us, he didn't come to show us how to get to God. He didn't come to show us what we have to do, how we have to climb up this mountain to get to God. Jesus didn't come to show us how to get to God. He came to show us what God would do to get to us. What we just read is God coming to us, doing stuff to get to us. God comes down from the mountain. God came from heaven to get to us. He's a good God. Jesus doesn't tell us how to get to God. Jesus is God coming to us, which is what we see in this word, Emmanuel. God with us. See, Jesus will save his people from their sin. And here's what this means. Even when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, what Jesus is saying in that is, Jesus is the only one coming for you. In the place that you are at, Jesus is the only one coming for you. There is no one else who is coming for you. There is no other God coming to rescue you, coming to find you, coming to save you. No one's coming. No one's coming for me except Jesus. Jesus is the only one coming. Coming to save you from your sin. Coming to save me from my sin. Coming to save my son Josiah from his sin. Coming to save my son Micah from his sin. Coming to save my daughter Olivia from her sin. Coming to save your grandchildren from their sin. Coming to save your aunt, your uncle, your husband, your wife, your friend. Coming to save them from their sin. No other God is coming to save. Only Jesus is coming. And that's enough. And that's enough. Only Jesus is coming. No other God. And so then there's the question. Why then is it that so many people are trying to gain the favor and love and affection 
of any other God. Why? Why are so many people trying to gain the affection and approval of any other God? Why is anyone trying to worship any other God? I mean, for you and I, why is it that we shift our attention slightly off of Jesus Christ and maybe we pursue contentment and pleasure and fulfillment in some other idol, some other false god, something else that has the affections of our heart? Why do we do that? Why do we look to other things that only Jesus can provide for us, God by His Spirit? Why at times do we continue in sin when it won't do anything for us? It won't fulfill. You see, any God that will not save you, any God that will not come to save you, come to deal with the human problem of sin is not a God worth worshiping at all. Any God that will not deal with sin that you and I find it impossible to deal with on our, on our own is not worth worshiping. Jesus is the only one who has come to save us from our sin, which is why he is the only God that is worth worship. He's the only God that is worth us worshiping. Let's pray together. And so we asked, together we prayed, that God would speak to us through this text, through his word. And so I just simply want to allow some time for us to spend in quiet prayer. And just, just ask God, God, what are you trying to say to me through this this morning? Maybe something will grab your attention. Talk to him, pray to him about that, and then ask him what you're supposed to do, what he wants you to do. Let's spend a few moments in prayer together. And then I'll close our time. just want to say, if you're here this morning and you, you've never <clears throat> dealt with God, with your sin, I want to invite you to um, come talk with one of our prayer partners up front here after the service. Come talk to myself at the New Here area. We'd be happy to talk with you and, and pray with you so that you would surrender your life to Jesus Christ and have him save you from your sin. Maybe this morning as well, it's a reminder to you just to confess your sin. Because God is faithful and just and will forgive you from your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He'll forgive you. Maybe this morning you need to do that. If there's something on your heart, we'd love to pray with you afterwards. And so now, God, thank you for being a God who hears us. Thank you for being a God who has come near to us. Thank you, God, for sending your son Jesus to help us deal with our sin, to save us from our sin, to forgive us from our sin so that we can walk whole and free before you.
thank you for what you've done. And I pray that all of us, as we look forward to celebrating your birth at Christmas, that you would speak to us, you would, you would show up in our lives in remarkable ways. Because we love you, Jesus, and we want to know you more and more and more. And so now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance, his glory upon you, and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, church. We'll see you next week, and have a great, have a great week.